RA Exchange. Welcome to Resident Advisors Exchange. I'm Chloe Lula, the Exchange's senior producer. Today's episode celebrates a pioneer of radio, Annie Nightingale, who passed away last week at the age of 83. Annie was the first female radio presenter on BBC Radio 1 in 1970, and she's the longest serving broadcaster in BBC Radio 1's history. She became known for championing new underground music and led the movement for women to become DJs and broadcasters. She was a necessarily disruptive force across radio and live music. Fans of Annie's knew her as the queen of breaks, since she had such a strong affinity for breakbeats. But she also introduced listeners to prog rock, punk, indie, and dance music, and was unfeignedly passionate about them all. She was a highly knowledgeable music curator and an expert at exploiting the intimacy of radio. Annie apparently had no technical know-how when she started at the BBC, but that didn't stop her. Despite her parents' request to have something to fall back on, she enrolled in a music journalism course and started at the BBC shortly thereafter, establishing herself quickly and even braving listeners' expectations by booking acts who weren't considered trendy or mainstream at the time. She speaks today with Martha Caden, the former producer of the RE Exchange and a current host on BBC Radio 1, who stepped in frequently for Annie the last couple of years. This interview was recorded a few years ago to mark the publication of Annie's book, Hey, Hi, Hello, which digs into her huge crate of memories and encounters. They spoke about being sworn at by Johnny Rotten, Annie's experience touring with Underworld and getting them into the acid house sound that defined their career, drill as the new punk, and the keys to success for aspiring broadcasters. Mainly, be reliable and don't be late. Don't be late. Don't be late. Just, just never be late. And it sounds so obvious that probably no one will ever tell you because it's your broadcast. You've got to be there. You know, you've got to be there. That kind of world, you must be incredibly reliable, incredibly on time. And so boring things like being reliable and on time are much more important than you imagine. And mm. also being very keen and enthusiastic and working very hard. It's don't think, oh, I don't have natural talent, therefore, I won't be any good at this. Don't believe that at all. It's the grafters who do well. Thanks so much for tuning into this highly entertaining and enlightening conversation. Without further ado, here is the late, great Annie Nightingale. We know each other. We've worked together for a number of years at Radio One. Um, and that's why for me, it's so exciting to have the book, your brand new book as a kind of framework, um, because it's a good way for me to share with my listeners some of the stories that maybe I already know about, but um, I'm really excited for all of my listeners to hear about. So um, first of all, (laughs) um, how does it feel to have your book out there? Well, it's great to have it out there. Um, And it's been having very nice reviews, which I'm because when you're writing, you're thinking, I don't know if this is any good. I have no idea. You know, so you just press on and you really don't know if it's if you're going to connect with the audience or not. In a way, like when you make radio, you mm. can't see the person on the other end. You don't know who's actually there. So it's not that different, really. Okay. 
So your book starts off with your kind of early experiences of joining BBC Radio 1. And this is something that is seems so crazy to me now, but there were no women on the station before you got there. So how did you go about breaking down the door? Uh, well, it took quite a long time. I, 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 I sort of had a campaign going. I, I worked in other areas of the media, so magazines and newspapers and, and TV. So that was another reason why I was so surprised to find that Radio 1 had this ban on women uh, because I had not experienced uh, that kind of sexism before. And so uh, it was this my bewilderment, really. And they really couldn't, they couldn't justify it. Because I'd say, uh, you say you want no women, why? And they said, because DJs are husband substitutes. <laughs> which I found absolutely laughable then as now. Um, and, but you have to kind of go back a long way and realise that the people who started Radio 1 were probably not the most enlightened. They were virtually all men. And I wouldn't think any of them were feminists at the time. So they were coming from a background where you know, um, people got married young, um, had babies and became housewives. And mm. so the DJs were companions until, you know, the great man of the house got home in the evening. That is what I gradually realised was their thinking. And probably a lot of other management people as well. Mm. So when you did manage to get to Radio 1, what were your initial intentions for your broadcasts? I want, and it actually hasn't changed. I have a passion for music and I, I want you to share it. I want, you know, you hear something new and you think, wow, I think this is fantastic. Is it just me? Or... You want to share it with somebody else and go a bit like, you know, pick the phone up and play a tune down the phone to your friend and say, what do you think? Am I going crazy or is this fantastic? And that hasn't changed. It's that simple. And I've been used to reviewing music in magazines and newspapers, but really you can't, it's very hard to get music, describe music in words in the, on the printed page, much better to be able to go, well, here you are, and play it to them. That was what I, why I wanted to be on Radio 1, not to be a celebrity or whatever. And so what was your first experience getting on air at Radio 1? Uh, well, the first show ever I did was a complete disaster. <laughs> um, this is the days when everything is vinyl. And the difference... There's a massive difference between what's had come before at the BBC. If you'd been an announcer, you'd have a big BBC microphone in front of you, and they say that the newsreaders actually wore dinner suits. I don't know if it's actually true, but that was the story. So they were very formal characters. And if they had a show that had records in it, 
somebody else would actually play the records in another part of the studio. So they didn't, they didn't operate the desk. Now, this is the big difference. It's the pirate DJs who had set up pop radio and that, that inspired me so much. They designed the desk and they had to operate all the, play the jingles and the records. And nobody at the BBC had done that before. And I knew that I had to learn how to do that. Otherwise, I would not be accepted. And it wouldn't sound right. It, it wouldn't sound the same as a new style of broadcasting, mm. which, uh, which the BBC hadn't experienced before. Tell me a bit about those pirates that you were listening to before you jumped on Radio 1. Uh, well, the pirates were uh, operating on pirate ships in international waters, which I found very exciting. The idea of international waters beaming pop music to the British mainland illegally, which made it sound even more exciting. And they were playing back-to-back -back pop music, not licensed, not paying any royalties to anyone, which they should have been. But it sounded really exciting. And that was what inspired me, I thought. And one day, Radio Caroline, which is one of the main ones, came along the horizon. I lived in Brighton at the time, um, right on the seafront. So I was listening to Radio Caroline. They were going, right, here we are. Hello, Brighton. We can see you. I could see the ship. And that inspired me so much. I wanted to jump in the sea and just join in right there and then, which was not really very viable. But that's what I thought. This is what I really want to do. So they became outlawed and Radio 1 was set up instead. And so I thought, ah, oh, well, they've had to come on dry land now on shore. Maybe this is my chance to join in. So I tried to do, to do so. And then they said no for three years. Mm. So I laugh about it now, but I, I must admit, I'd probably almost given up uh, because it was, seemed to be such a wall of of uh, resistance. This idea of a woman to me, I I'd worked in TV and magazines and newspapers. I had never experienced this before. You weren't judged on by your gender, and so that's why I, uh, yeah, a lot of me was very determined to break this down. But another bit of me was thinking, despair, never going to happen. Mm. Things were changing. We're heading towards the 70s. And there was a, magazine, a new magazine called Cosmopolitan, who I wrote music reviews for. And so women's lib was becoming a much greater force. So I think Radio 1 realised, and there was just a barrage of criticism, mostly coming from me, um, I think they realised that they'd have to have to take somebody on. And although I didn't like the idea of tokenism, I, I thought, well, you know, if they're going to take someone on, then I have been knocking at their door for a long time. And that turned out to be the case. So mm -hmm. it was like, oh, dear, if we have to take on a woman, who do we know? 
and I've been bothering them for so long. (laughs) And I think there's a lesson there as well, that if there's something you really want to do, circle your prey so that one day, you know, someone goes, someone gets ill, everyone's gone on holiday and they're going, oh my goodness, oh dear, who do we know? Or be the person they think of. So that's the lesson I learned from that, which I think that could be passed on to people in all kinds of areas, you know, just be that person. Um, And, you know, then do anything just to get experience, get your foot in the door. Yes, and be ready. Be ready, yeah. So you mentioned um, doing a bit of TV there. Um, I'd love to hear how has broadcasting on TV differed to broadcasting on radio? What what are the main things that are different for you and are there any similarities? Wow, that's quite a question. Um, yeah, there are immense, immense... I think radio has the edge because it's a very intimate medium. It's me talking to you or you talking to me. Whereas TV, you know that you're likely to have an audience, maybe not so much now when people watch everything on, you know, uh, on computers, on Netflix or, you know, whatever, and they're more likely to be on their own. But in those days, a TV show would have a group of people around you. So it's not that intimate medium like radio. It's like one person talking to one person. I think so. You've got a bigger audience. So that's one thing that's very different. Also, I think the technology has all, always dominated TV uh, too much. You know, so uh, or you've got to move because you're in the wrong light. Um, and the camera, the TV camera in the studio is still a great big lumping monster where it doesn't serve the the... The, the the images the images have to serve the camera so i don't think it's made the leaps and bounds that audio has it's a bit uh, more difficult to get that intimacy going exactly it's because it's hard i actually tried to maintain that and talk through the camera to that person but it's sometimes an odd feels odd uh to do that because everyone knows that you're talking to a larger audience. Mm. Tell me a bit about the old grey whistle test for our listeners who may not have heard of it. And do you have a favourite moment or a favourite calamity moment or anything that um, is really special to you? This sexism rears its head over this. Um, It's been going for several years. And it was very much a kind of long-haired blokes playing long guitar solos. That was it, because that was a period of the early 70s. But then punk happened, and it wasn't reflecting punk, um, as I believe it should be. And so there was a lot of resentment from both sides, the, the long-haired um guitar guys thought the punks couldn't play 
punks thought that didn't matter and it was more about what they had to say. So there's a bit of a war going on. And um, the person who was on before me, who uh, was a bloke, and he fell out with Sufficious uh, and various members of Sex Pistols. And he decided that Punk and him weren't going to get on. So he left the old Grey Whistler and they asked me if I'd like to take over. Now, I was very, I've been playing Punk on Radio 1. I was very happy to, to do so. I didn't have a problem with it. I couldn't wait to get some Punk um, people on onto that show. But what surprised me, and this surprised me many years later, that people would say, and I had done a TV show in the 60s alongside a very famous show called Ready, Steady, Go. And I was often on Ready, Steady, Go. And that was really revolutionary. They didn't use a proper studio. Um, they used, you know, the brick walls as background. And, you know, in the audience, if you got in the way of the cameras, you get mowed down, you know, like a, by a tank or something. That was really revolutionary. So I'd had quite a lot of, I'd had a lot of experience in TV, made documentaries, whatever. When I took over presenting the old grey Western, people used to say to me, aren't you intimidated? Well, I'd done a lot of TV. I could be intimidated by the medium. You want to get it right, you know, you don't want to um, fluff your lines or forget what you're supposed to say. But it's, the implication was intimidated taking over from a bloke. And that, again, surprised me, um, having had a lot of experience with, with TV. So all these surprises, I mean, it was as live for most of the bands and people who were on, a lot of them had never been on TV before. There were no retakes. So it's pretty scary for them. Mm. Um, people like Gary Newman, Tubeway Army, um, and... He was really, really nervous and understandably so. So, but break the, the best moment. I, I, um, I was the anchor for five years, and the best moment was Public Image Limited. So, you know, this is Johnny Rotten and uh, Co. After the Sex Pistols, and they they played live, and they were just it, it was. So, you know, it shook your body. It was that powerful physically. And so I said to Johnny Rotten Arsons, that was the most powerful performance you ever on this show. And he said, being him, he said, don't be so fucking patronising. <laughs> it took me like half an hour to convince him. I, I said, Look, I really, really mean it. And after that, he was great. He brought the drinks all night. And I would never have a, hear a word said against him. And I probably did sound fucking patronizing. So, <laughs> you know, a lesson learned. Um, so that was a, a high point for me of doing that show. And I think we did, in fact, uh, there are some documentaries I've made which should be coming out soon um, about the, some of the best of that period, and punk and post punk. Um, and very revealing about the music. It's actually a bit like, I mean, a grime and what's come after that, a drill 
is kind of today's punk to me because it's about saying something, not, not just playing long, boring guitar solos and showing off your, uh, your ability maybe as a musician, but people have got something to say. I mean, I remember having Lindsay Quasi Johnson on who's, I mean, the, you know, the, the grandfather of grime, if you like, and, and that was a real privilege. So there were great moments. Uh, but we did long series every week from start of September around to June. And then usually in the summer, we go to America to film some more uh, you know, unknown people. So there's a lot of pressure on the producer to come up with, you know, really interesting shows every week. But it was, it was a very interesting time. After that, it really, I left and it tailed off. And I'm not saying because of, but you had new shows like The Tube, which revolutionised TV again. And because the old grade was successful with BBC, it, a bit like a big ship that can't suddenly uh, change course that quickly. And this is a big, big machine. Yes, it's not quite so dynamic or flexible. There is a, a story of kind of a friendship that is in your book um, and I'm speaking about with Underworld. This is also interesting to me because we hear a bit about your experience as being a tour DJ, which is, of course, another kind of way that you as a broadcaster diversified your kind of realm of what you do for work. Um, so tell us a bit more about your experiences touring with Underworld. Right, well, they weren't called Underworlds to start with. They were called, and you were supposed to say it as a sound, not as a name. They were called Bruh. And you're supposed to say it like Bruh. Actually, it's spelled F R E U R. And um, they invited me in the, in the 80s to go on tour with them. And they thought I'd say no. I was thrilled. I'd never done that before. And uh, we went all around England and Wales. And at Loughborough University, um, I stepped across a bit of staging to speak to them, probably say, you know, how are you doing, guys? Are you, are you nearly ready or something? And I stepped into a void. It was like Alice in Wonderland goes down the rabbit hole. And I was thinking, oh, please don't let me hurt myself badly because he's only just begun the tour. So that's how I got to know them. Then they split up, our paths went different ways. And then they used to phone me up from Becks Hill, which is a kind of resort on the south coast of England, known for probably retirement couples, if you like. And they were actually starving. 
and I didn't know um, how bad things were for them because they tried to be a pop band and play deliberately um, commercial pop music and it never worked. Carl's partner decided that he was going to go electronic and make all the weird sounds that they'd learned in art college and stuff um, that they thought was completely uncommercial. And then Acid House happened and Carl realised that this, he said, this felt like home. This felt really special. And they had done all their pop stuff and it hadn't worked that they thought was the right thing to do. As soon as they started playing music they loved, it all began to work. And it particularly worked with a, a track called Born Slippy, which was used in the film Chainspotting. And from then on, it all became huge. And we've stayed friends ever since. But their story, and Carl tells it very well, how the Aces, which is a nightmare for them, they evolved into, into playing Acid House. And, and, and then the next time I saw them, was at Nothing Hill Chief Station. And I went, oh, hello guys, how are you doing? They went, oh, we've just formed a new band called Underworld. And from then on, and I'm not saying anything to do with me at all, but things started to happen for them. And then they became one of the biggest names of that period and continued to be so. So we stayed in touch and, and then they did the music for the opening ceremony of the Olympics. Mm. which I thought was pretty amazing. That's huge, isn't it? Mm. Well, let's dive right into hearing more about Acid House, which I'm sure many of our listeners today will be extremely keen to hear about. Um, So where were you at this point in UK music's kind of timeline and uh, what did the Acid House movement mean to you? We're talking late 80s. And although through the 80s it had electro, an electronic boom, which is the best thing that could happen, um, it was still in the world of clubland. It, the clubs were run by breweries and it was very, very organised. And, you know, it, it, I used to come play these clubs and it wasn't much fun. And it was so super organised and, you know, it was like, okay, boys and girls, drink up, now go home. And very soulless. And then people decided, that, I guess it was a, a club in Ibiza that started it all. And then they started, four DJs came back to the UK and started these clubs in London um, of their own, completely independently. And then started doing raves in fields um, and revolutionised the music. So it was no longer about big star names, bands. The DJ would be in the corner. And actually, Carl says in, the, in my book, the, the DJ and the audience were all the same. It was all part of the experience. And they would be in very weird places like warehouses and unlicensed and all illegal 
but the magic was incredible. And you weren't, you didn't feel you were being organized anymore. And it started a huge youth culture, which I say is still going on because of that. Mm. Um, and I, you know, I've been around in the 60s, so this was not my party. And I was very aware of that. And they were all going, yeah, come in, join in. I was going, well, you know, I'm sorry, I've been around the block. I'm not, I, I can't gate crush your party. But this is the lovely thing about them. They were very welcoming. Um, and if you had something to offer, and it changed me. People like Andrew Weatherall changed me because I realised you can play the music, but without having to go, everybody put your hands in the air. Yeah, and it wasn't all that anymore. It wasn't the DJ as uh, all-round entertainer. The, the DJ was mixing, playing fabulous music in the corner, no lights on, but just playing the music and people were there to listen to the music and all the aggression went that had been at clubs before that um, through chemical reasons. And um, it, it just changed, massively changed a, a, a generation. And a lot, I'd like to feel that it's still going on to some extent. Mm. It really didn't. I was aware of it happening and thinking, this is really special. And this is taking, democratizing music. That's what it did. Mm. It really did. And you could make a, you know, beginning of the make a record in your bedroom, get some 12 inch stars and press start, sell them, and begin to make a name for yourself. Yeah. I'm interested in what you mentioned about kind of just before Acid House arrived and things were getting perhaps a little bit stale or over polished because for me I feel like things in the UK scene as a kind of generalization were getting a little bit stale before we went into lockdown and had everything taken away from us Um, Ah, things were kind of like you know health and safety is a huge priority rightly so because we need to be safe whilst we're raving but um the kind of freedom that uh people describe when um speaking about acid house i don't necessarily think that that's so present in like contemporary electronic music Hmm. so it is interesting yeah i think um what happened was because obviously people started to realize that these people having a field and a generator and some decks was actually making a lot of money. So mm. the next thing that happened was all the money guys moved in and then we started having all the super clubs. So, I mean, Minister Sound, who I, uh, I'm very pro because I've done a compilation with them and I played there on New Year's Eve 1999. So I'm quite fond of Minister Sound. But you've got all the super clubs all over the UK. So suddenly the money start to take over again because people could see that was, you know, an Ibiza, perfect example that started out being very alternative. And now, <laughs> I mean, you know, it's become exactly that. It's just a money-making machine. And so that's they, these things become victims of their own success. Mm. So what starts out being underground and then 
as I say, the uh, the money guys move in on it and think, hang on, we, we can make a fortune here, and do. And the best example of that is what, what's happened in Las Vegas. I mean, <laughs> Las Vegas used to be all about, I don't know, comedians or Frank Sinatra or you know, people from a long time ago or nightclub entertainers. Now is where all the EDM, again, making absolute bucket loads of money. How America's done that, who refused to allow Acid House in, I tried, I, I was working, working for a radio station in Santa Monica in LA uh, for a bit, trying to get this music out there, but they were very determined not, not to let it in. And now they, they've converted it into EDM, made it palatable, um, charged people. I don't know how people are going to afford to go, but it's now, until lockdown, was making the DJs, superstar DJs, which, I mean, like $50 million a year? Mm. And you think, how, how has this happened in Las Vegas? Kind of the opposite of underground having a rave in the field. How, how has that happened? That fascinates me. I do have to laugh because I can't believe if someone said like 10 years ago, oh, the centre of dance music in the future will be Las Vegas. I would have said, ah, no chance, mate. Absolutely <laughs> impossible. So there you go. You never mm. know where this music is going to take you next. Exactly. One reason I still remain interested. Well, we kind of mentioned the way the world is right now with the pandemic and this whole landscape lays out a lot of challenges for young people who are trying to innovate and grow and kind of tend to these new ideas and developments of scenes. Um, what are your kind of hopes or concerns for the next generation of artists and what words of encouragement or advice would you share? I feel terrible for the people who or the people whose whose whole livelihoods have been taken away there is no live music as we know anywhere so that the whole culture appears to have completely stopped which is heartbreaking absolutely heartbreaking but we've got to look for i to me a vaccine is the the one thing that might open things up again because obviously anywhere where people are gathered close together is not going to be allowed. Now, I know there are a lot of raves going on and that a lot of young people completely understand and feel, look, we are not catching this disease. It's not affecting young people. We'll stay away from the old people and you know, have our raves because we're young people and students at universities, you know, being locked in and having to pay fees. It's, I think it's the toughest time for young people I can ever remember. And I feel really strongly about it. And I'm hoping that by being a young person with ingenuity, they will find a way through this. And I wish I could help, mm. you know, um, but it, it's 
isn't incredibly challenging. I think once we pass that six months up to then, everyone's going, right, well, we'll, we'll cope with this, we'll cope with that. But somehow, because we go on more than six months, mm. it's, it was a bit of a turning point. And I, it started getting to me more than it had before. And I feel I have great empathy every time I read about you know, the, the things that young people cannot do that I think we know life's not fair, but um, I think they've been remarkably patient. And I think it's a very difficult time because obviously you want to go out and express yourself, enjoy yourself. What are you supposed to do? Mm. Um, so one can only hope of hanging on in there. But meanwhile, if you're a DJ or you're a promoter uh, or you're a rigger at a festival, what are you supposed to do? It's taken away a, a whole generation of, 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 of young people's culture. And that must be very, very hard to take. I'm very emotional about it right now, you know. Mm. It's not fair. Um, and I think they deserve so much better than that. Mm. Perhaps some comfort can be taken in hearing, you know, the stories that you've been sharing because you've observed these many cycles through sound that have kind of come back around, genres coming back around, but with added bits of innovation. And you've kind of been present to nurture these new scenes as they grew. And so maybe if we kind of feel a bit more secure in the knowledge that, you know, music moves in these cycles and, and things will come back around with innovation. I don't think the same music ever comes back around. It's, it's always new. It's always... And that's what's exciting about it. Um, to me, as I said, there is a kind of parallel with punk at the moment because of people are saying, you know, Grindmasters saying, uh, beginning to speak out about it all and comment on social culture as it's happening. And I think that's very important that mm. they've got a voice and they've got, and someone who's listening is feeling in absolute despair and thinking, well, at least so-and-so understands me, you know, um, and, and that is sort of coming through a bit. I don't know how much bigger it will get, I don't know. No. Um, so what artists are you feeling excited about and inspired by at the moment musically? A lot of them are names <clears throat> I'd never heard of two weeks ago. Mm. Yeah, so they're all sort of very new names. I judge every tune individually rather than <coughs> excuse me rather than pick an artist um but the ones that, are, that people might have of um uh, people like Troy boy who you and i would work together with yeah who's been going for quite a while and the fact he's now doing mixes for billy eilish i mean i think she's quite sorry that is a once in a lifetime uh, uh, talent and crosses over from pop to just very very good music and and um, I think that's that's very important. And people like Dave um, in the 
the grime scene, I, I find it says grime and that's leading the way. Shrap, as you will know, that I've been playing a lot of for the last few years, that is, if you like, a genre that I enjoy, partly because to begin with, they all sounded like they're having such a good time. They're all like, <laughs> hey, hey, and you think, I want to be in the studio with these guys. And so that has been the genre that I've been um, uh, probably promoting more. People like Ghastly and Nightmare, and they all got their, you'll still they ought to be heavy metal with names like that. But <laughs> they're, they're great beats, but also great melodic music as well. So I think that area is what interests me. Started out in Atlanta and they're nearly all in LA now. Um, but there's people who's come from Australia, uh, people like Alice in Wonderland, who we've been a big fan of um, mm -hmm. on my show. So people like that who don't get much attention in the UK. And they're really big in America, so they don't come here much. But I think that some of the most refreshing modern music that I like, I mean, they say it's actually where hip hop meets metal. And that is kind of right. I feel like we could talk about so many more things, but uh, we don't have that much more time. Uh, <laughs> there are so many other really insightful and funny stories in your book and you share um, interviews with all these huge artists um, but before I let you go Annie maybe you could share with us your advice for aspiring broadcasters as you are celebrating 50 years on Radio 1. Well the last chapter and I, I've written as a separate piece it doesn't fit with the rest of the book but I called it so you want to be a rock and roll media star. And really, it's about, it's like, I go on and on about, don't be late, don't be late. Just, just never be late. And it sounds so obvious that probably no one will ever tell you. Um, because it's your broadcast, you've got to be there. <laughs> you know, you've got to be there. Um, and in another job, you might go, oh, well, you know, I mean, pre-pandemic, you know, the bus was late, the tube was late. You know, you might be 10 minutes late and it wouldn't matter. But in this kind of world, you must be incredibly reliable, incredibly on time. And so boring things like being reliable and on time are much more important than you imagine. And mm. also um, being very keen and enthusiastic and working very hard. It's don't think, oh, I don't have natural talent, therefore I won't be any good at this. Don't believe that at all. It's the grafters who do well. It's the people who really work hard. That's all you need. And be yourself. And that is harder than people realise because you might think, well, what have I got to say that's different? Why should anyone take a notice of me? But actually, if you are your honest self, as a broadcaster, that comes over. And that's all you need. And since I've um, had this book out, I've been doing a lot of interviews with uh, different radio stations. And one guy I spoke to in Brighton, and he said that line about being yourself, he said, really got through to me, he said, because when I started, I was trying to be 
somebody else, something more than myself, because you think yourself isn't enough. And then one day I decided to be myself and he said, you're absolutely right. I thought if I've got through to one person, that is good to know. Mm. And that I think all those things apply to a lot of things. And be honest, sometimes you can be tactful, um, but if you're honest in your voice, it comes across. And you, know, you don't need to fake anything. That's absolutely it. It does. It just really comes across and you can hear it and it just helps you. Well, it helps me as a listener just to connect even more with the person on the radio. Yeah, well, you know, you, you do want that person as a friend. I think one of the reasons why radio has survived beyond television and MTV and all the, all the technology that's happened in the last 20 years, and we still have radio and you know, um, Spotify, you could say, well, you know, you don't need radio if you've got Spotify. But I listened to a playlist the other day on Spotify. I thought, yes, tunes are great, but where's the voice? Mm. Wait, there was no warmth in it. And it, it, it's, it, that I've, I found I really missed. So long live the need for a voice between the tunes. From Marlin to Ealing, from Brixton to Browns Green. Thanks so much for tuning into this RE Exchange with BBC Radio 1's Annie Nightingale, who passed away last week at the age of 83. If you liked what you heard in this episode, please subscribe to the RA Exchange wherever you listen to podcasts and check out more from our archive on ra.co or on SoundCloud at ra-exchange. Until next time, take care. <laughs>